Untold Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary stranger. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Hey, do you remember Nexus Magazine? Great alternative uh, news publication. Uh, the content very similar to what we discuss on this program. Uh, conspiracies, alternative archaeology, uh, alternative health, free energy, ufology, and so forth. Well, Nexus is back and uh, now available in Canada and the U.S. And the publisher, Marcus Allen, will be with me shortly to talk about the relaunch of the magazine, some of the stories in this month's issue, and to talk about his particular area of interest, which is the photographic evidence he says proves the Apollo 11 lunar landing was a hoax. That's Marcus Allen, just moments away. Now, let me introduce the boys in the band, as always, on the Gibson Flying V guitar, my technical producer, Ian Robertson, on the Rickenbacker bass guitar, and occasionally the theremin, my story producer and occasional remote viewer, Albert Vinzel. Uh, a couple of programming notes. There is no Hangout on Air tonight. So, again, we are not streaming live on YouTube tonight, but we will resume the HOA next week. And uh, next week, we'll also get back, finally, uh, to our What's in the Box segment. I'm hoping by giving Albert a few weeks off, he'll be able to rededicate himself to the uh, the protocols of remote viewing. He's been struggling with that of late, uh, but I'm hoping 2017 uh, will be his year. Uh, the mighty Aphrodite has been texting me uh, with photos all night uh, from a, f- a friend of ours in uh, southern Greece where they are experiencing record cold temperatures and snowfall. Again, southern Greece, they they rarely ever see snow there. Uh, and uh, uh, Katie, our friend, uh, sent us some pictures from Kalamata. People woke up this morning with their cars covered in ice and, and nobody knew what to do. They don't have ice scrapers in southern Greece, but luckily, our friend Katie uh, came to visit us a few winters ago when we had that really bad ice storm, and she got to experience a real Canadian winter. We had a power outage and and ice and uh, record cold, and she loved it. Uh, So now they're getting a little winter in Greece, and uh, Katie sprang into action and was showing everybody over there how to scrape ice. I love it. Uh, And here's another picture. They even have snow in Santorini. Uh, so much for global warming. Anyway, I'll, I'll get the mighty Aphrodite to tweet those images of winter in southern Greece. Uh, at Richard Serrett. All right, to our main entree. It will be 47 years ago this coming July. Two American astronauts, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, landed and walked on the surface of the moon, heralded as one of the great achievements in, in uh, history. But does the photographic evidence of this achievement hold up to scrutiny? Marcus Allen says no way. He's the publisher-distributor of Nexus Magazine, hailed as the world's best-selling alternative news magazine, recently relaunched and now available in North America. Marcus Allen, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Richard, and very very good to be on your show. Likewise, great, great to have you. And I know you're very fond of saying that there are two people in the world, those who read Nexus Magazine and those who are about to. Uh, for, That's right. <laughs> for, for those who are about to, tell us what's been going on with Nexus, because it, I mean, it was dormant for a while and then you've relaunched it. Give us a little bit of the, the a thumbnail sketch of the timeline of Nexus Magazine. Okay. Um, well, Nexus Magazine, it actually originates from Australia. Yes. And for many years, it was sold in uh, in Canada and the United States, and in fact, all around the world. I came across it about 20, over 20 years ago and thought, well, this is an interesting magazine. I would like to read it. 
but I, could, I found I couldn't buy it in the UK at all. So, long story short, went out to Australia, met the editor, Duncan Rhodes, and uh, said, I'd like to sell it in the UK. He said, go for it, lad. And for the last 22 years, that's what we've been doing over here in the UK. So you would be distributing it, but you're you're also publishing, correct? Yes, we 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 publish it and distribute it and sell it and promote it and basically introduce people to it. And now uh, it has a truly worldwide audience. Oh, we do. Yes, in, in fact, for, for many years, Nexus was sold in the United States or, or in North America generally, in Canada as well. And for various reasons, that dropped out and. We, because we were doing very well with Nexus in the UK, we started exporting it into North America through distributors, um, sold through bookshops and major outlets throughout North America. And it was going so well that it became rather, uh, shall we say, expensive to ship several tons of magazines across the, <laughs> across the Atlantic. So it was easier to print it in the in North America. It's now printed in the United States and distributed right across. It's been redesigned, but um, it, it looks a bit different. So if you're going out looking for the old-style Nexus, it's a bit different now, but it's still got the head, the, the, uh, the main masthead, Nexus magazine. And you'll find it uh, pretty well distributed across North America now. Well, it, but it's, it's still got the same content. Sure, sure. You know, it, it's interesting... Uh, I've been I've been doing this radio program uh, or or various iterations of it for my gosh almost 20 years and uh, I know you've been involved with with Nexus uh, for a longer than that but uh, you know you look back over the uh, the last year in particular and um, it I, I call it the year you should you know the year your paranoid friends turned out to be right. Uh, because so much, of the, so many of the I'll things, so many of the things that you write up about, or, or that are published rather in in Nexus that we talk about on the radio, are turning out to be self-evident, right? Which is the third stage of of the truth. First, That's it's, right. first it's uh, ridiculed, then it's violently opposed, and now it's accepted as self-evident. Well, we're sort of at stage three in many of these areas. I'm just wondering what's happening as we as we've gone through the last couple of years. What's happening with your with your with your readers readership and your subscription base? Do you find it's it's becoming more and more popular? It um, the thing we found mainly is that that people who read Nexus do so for a considerably long period of time, and they become very familiar with it. And the amount of people who will come to us and say wow, Nexus has really changed my life. It's quite extraordinary. Mm. And the number of people who, who really do read the information, because that's what Nexus is. It's a, it's a text magazine. It's not pictures. I mean, there are pictures in there, but they just illustrate an article. But the main strength of it is the information that's contained there. And you start from an article, and you then, if you're interested... You'll research it yourself, and you'll go into different areas and, and expand it from there. And that's what we find happens with many people, that they, they look upon Nexus as their starting point to developing what they want to find out about. Sounds like your readers and my listeners have a lot in common. There's probably a lot of crossover there. I think you'll find they do, because um, you'll find that, that many Nexus readers are very, very interested in a lot of the subjects which you've 
had guests on your show to talk about that we talk about uh, in in Nexus or articles are published in Nexus which which seem to resonate with people. They say, yes, I, I wondered about that. And, and many people will say, it was only after reading Nexus I found that it wasn't just me. There were lots and lots of other people and, and it's, it's good to be part of a community. All right, it, whether it's online or it's on magazine, it doesn't really matter, but it sort of helps that it means that you're not alone. There are other people who think the same way. There are other people who are interested in the same subjects, whether it's, you know, so, uh, whether it's the earlier civilizations that we hear about, whether it's ET or UFOs, whether it's part of the politics, whether it's the the way that the modern mainstream press deals with things, which is one of the articles in the current issue. Yes, the whole idea of, of fake news. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, fake, fake news is now big news, as they say. But uh, Nexus has been aware of it, because one of the strap lines we had, which which was um, reading between the lines, and you put the word lie, put the, the N of lines in brackets, and it's reading between the lines. Right, right. This is basically what Nexus is about. It's trying to to illuminate the things which are a bit opaque in the world. And the fake news stories that have come out really in the last... What, a couple of months or so. It's extraordinary because it, it's it's actually an article that we published in this current issue. I'm not yeah. saying that Nexus precipitated the whole fake news stuff, but it's partly. You know, it, it's got to a point where you can't um, hide it anymore. It's up there. Well, this is a fascinating thing about this whole arena that you and I uh, um, live in, are immersed in, and that is we we sort of you know I wake up some mornings thinking, my gosh. You know, I used to be in the alternative media, although I'm on a mainstream, you know, network. But I, I wake up one morning, and think, I, I, I might become obsolete. I might be, so, I might be mainstream pretty soon because everything that we talk about is is coming true. Do you, do you ever feel that way? You're not going to be billed as the, you know, the leading alternative magazine anymore. You're going to be lumped in with the mainstream. I think. Well, let's say the alternative will become the mainstream. Yes. Because the mainstream has so debased itself, has become so much PR-driven, fake, uh, and people are beginning to see through it. They're beginning to see, you know, where did that story come from? What's that? We're talking about a cancer treatment here. Well, where did that originate from? And you realize it's a PR piece from some pharmaceutical company. It's not news at all. It's not investigative reporting. It's just rehashing somebody's publicity and people are beginning to, to realize that you know they've they've been misdirected for so long that they're now going to be looking for well, where's some where's some really good real hard evidence that i can follow up on and they will gravitate to shows like yourself magazines like nexus areas that are covered on coast to coast these are things which have been around for many years and they've established themselves, and they have a loyal audience, and people are saying, you know, you should listen to that, or you should read that. And other people are saying, yeah, okay, I'll have a look. And, and that's where we get, uh, there are two types of people in the world, those who read Nexus and those who are about to. 
And there are many more people about to read Nexus. No question. Marcus Allen is uh, with us, publisher-distributor of Nexus magazine, and um, relaunching uh, the world's best-selling alternative news magazine, now available here in Canada and uh, the U.S., and again, making it uh, truly a global publication. Um, we'll, we'll be taking a time out shortly, but let's just get this conversation started now. We'll continue after the break. And I wanted to talk to you about another particular passion that you have, uh, and that is, uh, well, about, uh, I guess it's been six months since we passed the, uh, let's see, 46th anniversary of the uh, the lunar landing, or we're approaching the 47th, I guess, another way of looking at it, July of 1969. And um, how did how did you first get into researching, uh, you know, the possibility that the, the lunar landing was a hoax in your estimation. What, how did that happen? Was it before your involvement with Nexus or after? It was. It was actually just after my involvement with Nexus. Um, so we're talking over twenty years ago, and it was something which occurred quite by chance. Uh, you're probably familiar with Glastonbury in in Somerset in England. Oh yes, um, the famous Glastonbury Festival. So it's actually held about five miles outside the town, but it's still called Glastonbury because everybody's familiar with it. And I was I was at the, this, the Glastonbury Symposium, which is an annual event organized. At, it's looking at, um, originally it was designed to look at crop circles, and it's expanded now into conspiracies and various other areas. And one of the talks I listened to, this is over 20 years ago, um, uh, it was looking at, at various conspiracy areas. And one of the things mentioned was the moon landings. And, and the speaker said, well, of course, you know, it never happened. And he showed a few photographs up on the screen. And I thought, what's he on about? Of course it happened. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to have been around when it did allegedly happen. Mm-hmm. I say allegedly advisedly now. <laughs> and uh, I thought, what's he talking about? I, you know, I, I was trained as a photographer many years ago in London, and I thought, well, you know, if he's showing that the photographs are a bit uh, suspect, I'll have a look at it and see if I can find out how wrong he is. Marcus, I'm going to jump right in here now. We'll put a hold on it right there. We'll come back and we'll uh, pick up on the photographs, the photographic evidence, the lunar landing hoax with Marcus Allen, publisher, distributor of Nexus Magazine, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Marcus Allen, Nexus Magazine. First of all, Marcus, how can people uh, subscribe or get a hold of this fine publication? Well, the best way is to um, you can go online and uh, check out nexusmagazine.com, which is the website. You can subscribe through that. Or you can go into, if you've got um, good bookshops, you can go into easily you can probably find it in there and if it's not there ask for it because that will get it into the bookshop it's being distributed throughout North America so it's very you just say go to your draw your own your magazine distributor this and uh, get it in for me. Show. that would and, be another way of doing it and it's still bi-monthly right every other month yes it comes out every other month um, current issue is the January February issue next issue will be the uh, March April issue so there's some interesting stuff in there. I definitely recommend people to try it at least. It's the, 
the least you owe yourself. Give yourself an early New Year present or even <laughs> a, late, a late Christmas present. There you go, absolutely. Uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, the Apollo 11 lunar landing hoax and uh, how you became interested in it. You had a, uh, have a background in, in photography, so you kind of honed in on the, the photographic evidence because... I mean, that's an interesting area. There were, what, something like 30,000 photos taken on the on the lunar surface, supposedly? Uh, that's right. Yeah. And, and who was the principal photographer? Was it, uh, was it Buzz Aldrin or was it um, uh, Armstrong? Well, on, on Apollo 11, um, most of the photographs were taken um, by Neil Armstrong. Uh, there's an interesting story behind that because uh, how many people can actually identify a photograph of Neil Armstrong on the lunar surface? Hmm. Uh, there is apparently one which shows his back view in the distance, which is a bit weird when you think of it. He's, he's, you know, he's probably one of the most famous men in the 20th century. He passed away four years ago. Instead, he was buried at sea off the coast of Florida various reasons but um, there were 121 photographs taken on the lunar surface during Apollo 11 which is which is weird because there were actually two cameras one one camera for each astronaut but on Apollo 11 only one camera was used they had large they were Hasselblad cameras it's a very good camera um, not not an ideal choice because uh, Hasselblad cameras are medium format most people are familiar with 35mm cameras. Right, right. Uh, Hasselblad are the next size up. They're medium format, 70mm square. And um, they were clipped to their chest. They had a, a mounting point on the chest so they could keep their hands free to pick up the rocks and salute and wave the flag about. Sorry, I'm, I'm being a bit flippant here. Aren't I? <laughs> I, should, I should be more respectful, I suppose. <clears throat> but considering it all didn't, none of it happened on the moon... I think we can probably excuse that. But the more I looked at the photographs, in fact, finding the photographs, this was 20 years ago, before the Internet um, had all the photographs posted, finding a copy of these Apollo photographs was actually quite difficult. I had to go to an astronomy show in London to find them, and I got half a dozen copies, or half a dozen, dozen different photographs. And I started looking at them, and I thought, hey, these are great photographs. These are spectacularly good photographs. Now, I've used a Hasselblad camera myself, and I know that they produce very, very good images if you get it right. Right. But, uh, and uh, most people, obviously, today would be familiar with digital cameras. The Apollo photographs were not digital images. They were all taken on film. Right, right. Again, that's another difficulty because you have to develop the film, which means you've got to go and process it. So if you take it on the moon and you process it, how do you know you've got the exposure right? Because it didn't have an exposure meter. Ah. So the more I uncovered about the, the limitations of this camera, though it's technically a very good camera, it's a very hard camera to use, it had no exposure meter except for a little chart that was clipped to the top of the camera. So if you point it towards the sun, you had one exposure. If you point it away from the sun, you have a different exposure, which is quite routine. But you had to focus it by hand, set the aperture by hand, and the with those big, speed. With those big gloves on. With what, in effect, were armoured gauntlets. 
Right. Now, how many, how many people could guarantee to get good photographs with a Hasselblad camera while wearing heavy-duty gardening gloves? And how do you it look into the viewfinder? How do you look into the viewfinder with that big helmet on? Well, you haven't got a viewfinder. Aha! Uh -huh. They took the viewfinder away because you couldn't look at it with your with your helmet on, because on a Hasselblad the viewfinder is on the top of the camera, and because you can't get your head down close enough, they said, "Oh, forget the viewfinder. We'll just take it away. Just just point it in the general direction of the subject you want to photograph. It'll be okay." <laughs> I no. mean, for God, look, come on, guys. You know, get a grip. You know, you know how it's many my 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 grandmother, God rest her soul, who had that you know the flip. The, uh, the viewfinder on top that you would flip had the big flash pod on the side. And even with that, God rest her soul, you know, she was cutting off heads left, right, and center every Christmas, Thanksgiving. <laughs> and she had the advantage of a viewfinder. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's easy to cut heads off. You're quite right. Because, all right, on, the Hass on this particular Hasselblad camera, they were using a, 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 a semi-wide-angle lens. It was a 60-millimeter okay, so uh, lens. So it's slight wide-angle. It's the equivalent of a 35-millimeter lens on a 35-millimeter camera. Mm -hmm. Slight wide angle. But it still has to be pointed in the right general direction. And if you look at the, the photographs of Apollo 11, and you mentioned there are over 30,000 actually taken on the lunar surface by the, um, um, the other Apollo missions, or right through to Apollo 17. Very, very few photographs. Um, are very are very bad. Most of them are quite acceptable in terms of what they show. Right. And when they show the other astronaut, one astronaut taking a picture of another one, you don't get heads cut off. You don't get off-centered images, which you'd expect. Now, what you would then do, because you're in a place you've never been to before, you've got lighting conditions which are probably a bit tricky, you would do what's called bracketing. Yes. Now, bracketing means that you would take one the exposure you think it's right and one slightly above it, one slightly below it. If you are not sure about the focus, you would, because you can see the focus ring on top of the camera, you would adjust the focus as far as you could to get it right and then adjust it some more. So you would take lots and lots and lots of different pictures of the same subject to make sure you've got at least one that worked. That didn't happen. You can now go onto the internet and you can look at every single photograph taken on the lunar surface and during the, for the, 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 the alleged trips from the Earth to the Moon and back again. Right. You can, you can get all that and you can look at them. And if you're a photographer, you're used to looking at contact sheets. So you can see the way in which the photographer built up to get the photographs you wanted. Right. You might take ten shots before you get the yes, one you, you want. And so they're shooting at a ratio of what, one to one? Yes, more or less that. I mean, uh, on, on the time they spent on the lunar surface, they were taking one photograph every 50 seconds, which doesn't sound a lot. You think, well, one photograph every 50 seconds. But they had a lot of other things to do as well, like collect rocks, salute, and plant flags, and drive around in little rovers, and get in and out of the lunar lander. So they, they had a lot of things to do. And the more I looked at the photographs, the more I looked at the images, the more questions arose, like, why, in some cases, can you see very clearly in what is obviously shadow? Now, the, um, the, the famous sequence of photographs which shows Buzz Aldrin coming down the ladder from the lunar lander, being photographed by Neil Armstrong. Yes. 
he's actually in shadow at that point. Uh, what I would mean, be creating the shadow? Well, it's, it's the shadow of the lunar land. Okay. So uh, he, he is in shadow. I mean, you can see the sunlight behind him. It, it's fairly clear. And I think, well, okay, so they must have used some sort of flash gun to get the amount of light into his um, features so that you could see who he was and, and what he was doing. And right, he's, right. He's, he's coming down the ladder, right? Now I find out they didn't have any flash guns. They didn't have any reflectors. They didn't have any additional lighting. So where did all the light come from? Oh, it's obviously light reflected off the lunar surface. I think, no. no. Knowing enough about the photographs, and they are, these are a photographic film, they're not digital. If you can get the highlight of light on the surface of the moon behind the lander correctly exposed, you would expect anything in shadow to be in such deep shadow you couldn't see any detail. And this was not the case. So there's something very, very strange going on. I had a, I had a question about the, uh, the actual operation of a, of, a, of a camera, even if it is a, um, what's a Hasselblad worth, about 20 grand? Well, yeah, about, yeah, about uh, 15, 20 grand. Yeah. That's, that's about, in fact, most of that is for the lens, because it, which is actually a very, very good lens made right. by Zeiss. But even with but an yeah, expensive I, camera, uh, yeah. and, and I understand the only automatic function on that camera was the, uh, the, the film winder to advance the film, right? That's correct. So but with, with the mechanics of a camera, uh, you know, I take my iPhone 7 out, and if it's, you know, just even above freezing, it just shuts down. Uh, what's the surface on the, what's the temperature on the surface of the moon? On the surface of the moon, in sunlight, about two, about um, 250 degrees Fahrenheit, 120 degrees centigrade. 120 in, right. It, it's like it's hot. It's very hot. Because there's no atmosphere to diffuse the sunlight. You're being, it, um, given the, the sun is 93 million miles away, the Earth and the moon get about the same amount of sunlight. But right. because there's no atmosphere on the moon to diffuse it, you get the full energy of the sun. If you're in the shadow, it's minus 120 degrees centigrade. Right, minus 120. It's like colder than any other place on Earth. The coldest place on Earth is in Siberia. It's minus 62 degrees centigrade. Well, that on leads, the moon, it's minus 100 degrees centigrade. That leads me to my question. I mean, what, how... Uh, would they have to? They would have had to have adapted that camera to withstand those temperature fluctuations. Otherwise, I'm thinking it it, it wouldn't operate. Well, exactly. Uh, again, that, that, uh, this was something which, once you start looking into the detail of it, it starts to become obvious that there are a lot of unanswered questions. Now, obviously, the thing to do would then be to ask NASA if they could um, provide some suggestions as to how these things would work under those conditions. Well, when you realize that NASA stands for never a straight answer, that's what you're going to get. <laughs> it, there's no point in asking. They're not even prepared to, to address the issue. I've tried. Um, I, in fact, <laughs> I approached NASA and said, look, uh, this is about 20 odd years ago when I started on this. I thought these um, spacesuits they've been using, wandering around on the lunar surface, and we haven't even started talking about radiation yet. Van Allen belts, right. 
Van Allen belts, these spacesuits, which obviously protected all the astronauts from the dangers of radiation in space, which are quite severe. Could these same spacesuits, I thought, be used by technicians to go into Chernobyl, which had just happened, a three-mile island, and clear up the mess? Because if you, radiation is radiation. Right, right. If they can protect it from the uh, galactic cosmic rays and the solar particle events and all the, the photons and protons and electrons and all the other ons that go on in space, surely we could just use these magnificent spacesuits and go and clear up the mess. And so I contacted the manufacturers of the spacesuit, which is a company called Hamilton Standard, mm-hmm. part of the International Latex Corporation, people who make bras, so they make nice bendy things. And they, <laughs> they said, we built the spacesuits, we made the spacesuits according to the specification that NASA had provided. You better address your question to them. So I tried, and I'm still waiting for the answer. Ah, and you will continue to wait. Uh, Marcus, hold on. We will take a time out, come back, and continue to discuss uh, Nexus Magazine and the Apollo Lunar Landing, July of 1969, with the publisher of Nexus, Marcus Allen, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Marcus Allen. Marcus, tell us once again how we can uh, subscribe to Nexus Magazine. NexusMagazine.com would be your best bet. If you're sitting at your computer right now, check it out. You'll find out how you can subscribe. And I should also mention the, uh, the Nexus News Feed. Make a note of that. Nexus News Feed, which is a free access uh, information resource. Quite a lot of the information that gets into Nexus comes through the nexusnewsfeed.com. Check it out. It covers a huge number of areas of information, whether it's ancient civilizations, health issues, spirituality, anything that, that you feel interested in, you'll find on the nexusnewsfeed.com. But Nexus magazine is the, is the, the major resource because it's available and it's very hard to take a, a, an iPhone or a computer into the bath with you if you want to read it. <laughs> very inadvisable to drop it. But you can take Nexus magazine into the bath with you because that's going to be dried out easily enough. If you drop <laughs> you it Yet another you advantage. Another advantage. That's true. <laughs> All right. We were talking about the photographs and exhibits, number one, in your case against the Apollo 11 lunar landing. Just a slight side road here, and then we'll, we'll uh, wander back to the uh, the main points of the discussion. But you took your evidence in your presentation right into the lion's den a few years ago. You went to the Interplanetary Society, I think it was in Liverpool at the time. Uh, and these are, I mean, that society, that's like Arthur C. Clarke and, and uh, astronomers, and, and uh, these are hard-boiled scientists did you, why did they invite you, and, and how did you feel when you uh, you walked in there to tell them the lunar landing was a hoax? <laughs> Terrified. Into the lion's den it was. No, it was, it was very, very interesting, that one. Um, there obviously been quite a lot of discussion. As you say, the British Interplanetary Society is the, the oldest and longest established um, society of its type in the world. And it was founded and, and set up originally in Liverpool, in the north of England. Very good football team I have as well, by the way. I've heard. Uh, 
was set up in 1933, and some of the, the major uh, people involved, Arthur C. Clarke was one, Patrick Moore was another. Uh, many people, in fact, Neil Armstrong is an honor or was an honorary member. Buzz Aldrin has been there. Ed Mitchell's been there. Many of the astronauts have mm. been there. Um, and I got invited because I, I've done many talks, many presentations, um, which I like doing because uh, it helps me to promote Nexus as well. It's a sort of double-edged sword. And um, they'd obviously heard about me and invited me to come and explain my position. Now, this was then announced in the... Um, uh, the, uh, and the British Penetration Society have regular speaking sessions, usually about one every two weeks or so. They have somebody talking about astronomy, which is the main subject, talking about space travel, talking about all different types of aspects of space. And this was obviously one that they felt was appropriate for the society. So they announced it on their website and in their magazine, magazine called Space Flight. And all hell broke loose. <laughs> How on earth could this venerable society invite a hoax believer? That's what I am. I'm a hoax believer to to address it. It will it would be it would denigrate the society. Anyway, once once all the fuss had died down, it was always quite a bit of fuss. Um, they said, right, well, we're going to change it slightly. We won't have you just just you talking. We're going to have a debate. You can present your case, and then we'll have one of our esteemed members present the other side and will refute everything you say. <laughs> you said with confidence. <laughs> uh, so that's how it started. We, we had um, uh, 20 minutes each. I could present my side of it. The other side could, be, could then refute everything I said, tear me to pieces, make me look a complete idiot, which they singularly failed to do. We then had a question and answer session, which lasted about an hour, which is quite unexpected. And the main criticism of the person refuting what I had to say was that he didn't do it. He didn't refute anything I said. He wandered off on his own uh, little talk, explaining what a wonderful thing Apollo was and how extremely fascinating all the astronauts were and how, of course, NASA would only tell you the truth. So how can you believe somebody who comes along and says they don't? So, Did you change any minds? I don't know if I changed any minds, because what one has here is called confirmation bias. Mm, yes. People will believe and continue to believe what they believe, despite any evidence presented to the contrary. All right, we'll take a time out, come back and finish up. Marcus Allen, publisher, Nexus Magazine. Back with more in a moment. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Marcus Allen is the publisher, distributor of Nexus Magazine, which has been uh, relaunched, a, a bold new look, uh, same great content. And uh, once again, Marcus, how do people subscribe? Right. The best way to subscribe uh, to Nexus Magazine is go onto the website, nexusmagazine.com. You'll see subscription information there. It's uh, it's good value. Price in the U.S. is I think it's six ninety nine. 
it's a good value magazine, and if the price worries you, then obviously you're not ready for Nexus yet. <laughs> it's a bi-monthly, and uh, the latest issue, uh, just give us uh, a, a few of the articles. You mentioned uh, a, a major piece on fake news, which of course is most timely. Oh yes, yes, PR, propaganda, and the press. Reading between the lines, it's headed. The public relations hasn't merely leaked into the news, it's saturated it is part of the promotion to the article. We also carry um, the annual report from Project Censored, which looks at 25 news stories of 2015-2016 that were the most ignored by the U.S. corporate media. Well, that's a surprise. <laughs> yes. Um, we have a fascinating article on the Mandelbrot set. And, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Mandelbrot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benoit Mandelbrot was the... Um, IBM computer professor who created the formula that would create the Mandelbrot image, which is that magnificent heart-shaped image, which is basically what nature does to produce itself. Nature is based on fractals, right, which is right. what Mandelbrot set is. I'm also interested in crop circles, and uh, that was the thing that got me into crop circles, which was the the iconic Mandelbrot image that appeared in the, on the east uh, near Cambridge in England. Right, right. Yeah, in so 1992. Many, so many of them appear to be fractals. That's true. Okay. Extraordinary. All right. So, so back to uh, back to your presentation at the British Interplanetary Society and uh, your evidence, photographic evidence that the lunar landing ho- was a hoax. Um, and again, they they didn't really um, debate the evidence. Um, they just, I guess, ignored it, which is... Well, it, it was basically um, the standard thing which, which many people do in this area and, and other areas. Uh, they don't play the ball, they kick the man. So <laughs> right. I, I was being attacked personally, which is fine. Some... I, yeah. I'm big enough and old enough and ugly enough to not worry about it. Well, it is a sensitive. It is a sensitive area because uh, you know it is one of those sacred cows, particularly because you know people um, died uh, in the the Mercury program and the Gemini program uh, in this space race, and so I guess people feel that somehow what you're doing is is denigrating not only this great accomplishment but and I know this is not what you're doing but this is what I'm I'm assuming is is where a lot of the vitriol comes from that you're somehow you know tainting the legacy including those that that gave the ultimate sacrifice that's 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 a very good summary actually it's very uh, that's very accurate um it's it's one of those iconic areas the apollo moon landings and there are the number of people who have said to me, it's because of the Apollo moon landings I got into the science areas, mm-hmm. and that's why the, I do the job I do today. People, people really feel that they, they owe the Apollo missions a lot of what their life has turned out to be, which is fine. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. It, it, it was a, a very good demonstration of the use of science, because what we saw or what we thought we were looking at, was an incredible achievement. I would love it to be true. I really would. I would love it to, to believe that man has landed on the moon. Is now, it? I can quite understand that if somebody comes along and says, nah, I didn't. Nah, it's all fake. 
um, but people get quite upset. And we've seen people being upset actually recently in the American elections, haven't we? Yes, indeed. I'm, I'm, which the... I'm trying to think of it. You know, the the comeback to that, the the plausible um, explanation that yes, we landed on the on the moon, uh, or the, the the Americans landed on the moon, but in order to prevent some sort of a public relations catastrophe, that the pictures didn't turn out. That the, you know, the television feed was cut or didn't, you know, it didn't transmit properly. Uh, that they did, in fact, uh, shoot all of that on a sound stage somewhere in order to it's sort of it's the equivalent of, of um, I guess, you know, kicking the one point convert after the six point touchdown. They they couldn't they couldn't risk not having something to show the world, photographs, the television feed, and so that was done beforehand. Is, is that not a, a possible explanation? Absolutely. Um, that's, that's a very plausible situation. Uh, because don't forget that this, this, this was the famous space race, wasn't it? Mm. Um, and John Kennedy, who had made his original announcement back in May 1961, land a man on the moon before the decade is out and all that, the decade was rapidly coming to the end. They had to be seen to achieve their dead president's challenge, which is fine. 400,000 people worked on Apollo at the height of the program. Uh, they weren't party to any of this. A very, very small number of people would have been involved. So what you've got is a situation where it has to be seen to be done. Yeah. It's all going to be shown live on television. Now, in the eight years between the announcement of of the program and the completion of it in July 69 there was a lot of training a lot of preparation a lot of work to be done part of that work would have been real-time simulation of the missions mm -hmm. it's a logical thing to do they had simulators of the lander they had simulators of the command module and they did real-time simulation so if the, if the if the mission was going to take eight days they had a, a a simulation for eight days, so everybody could get the idea of what it was going to be, what was going to happen. These were all filmed. These were all photographed, obviously. So you could debrief them and say, "Look, when you come down the ladder, bars, don't put your foot there. Put it there. You fall off." This is normal, practical things to do. Of course, they were photographed. Of course, they were filmed. Now, if what happened was that they they took off, as we all saw. They, la they flew to the moon. They, got out, they walked about. They took the photographs, talked to the president, collected some rocks, waved some flags, came back again. Let's develop all those photographs you've just taken. So they developed the photographs. Oh, shit, what's happened? Oh, we forgot the radiation. Mm. It's fogged the film. That's right. If that had happened, and NASA had come up and said, uh, sorry, guys, we forgot about the radiation. Uh, the film got fogged. The photographs didn't come out. But this is what it looked like, because we, when we did the training exercises, we got it as close as possible. Neil and Buzz and all the other guys, they'll tell you this is what it looked like. If that is what they had said, I would have no problem with it. But it's not what they said. NASA said, these photographs were taken on the lunar surface. I contend they could not have been because their film would have been fogged by the radiation.
and the heat. The batteries wouldn't have worked. They wouldn't have been able to get to the moon because they'd have been incapacitated by the radiation in the Van Allen belts. The rockets didn't work properly, we know now. They, they were not powerful enough. And have you heard the story of the Apollo 13 capsule that the Russians got hold of? That they got hold of? No, no. I yep. mean, we all remember the Apollo 13 mission. Um, That's a wonderful story, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... It's, 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 the, it's the space rescue story. That, right, right. I mean, by this time, it was so mundane, they weren't even televising it live. <laughs> Wasn't it a great film that Tom Hanks got hold of? It was a wonderful of? film. Uh, a little bit of myth-making, I'm guessing. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Now, back to, back to real-world time here. April... 1970, April the 11th, was when Apollo 13 launched from Cape Canaveral. It wasn't called Cape Kennedy until 1973. Right. 1970, April, Apollo 13 launched. It went somewhere. April the 12th, 1970, in the Bay of Biscay, mm-hmm. which is between off the coast of France and Spain, right. a Russian submarine is observed by a Canadian ore carrier. In, and this Russian submarine is in some difficulty. There's two other ships near it, Russian ships, because there's a big Russian naval exercise going on. Somehow, an Apollo command module is seen floating in the water and is taken on board a Russian fishing vessel. Now, that is a euphemism for a spy ship. Mm. Remember the Pueblo? Yes, yes. That's the American equivalent of the Russian trawler. Ah. This is a real... Apollo command module. It is taken by the Russians to Mamansk, the north coast of Russia. In September 1970, the U.S. Coast Guard, called the South Wind, pays a courtesy visit, we're told, to Mamansk, where it collects this Apollo command module It's strapped to its deck. It was pre-planned, this visit, because the U.S. Coast Guard cutter, uh, the South Wind, normally had a five-inch gun on the front deck. This gun had been removed to allow space to stow the Apollo command module, which weighs about six tons, seven tons. Wow. It goes... Uh, the south wind goes to the Manx for three days. It takes on board the, the the command module. There are photographs to show it. This isn't some weird story. This is this is for real. This is reported throughout um, Russia, or the Soviet Union as it was then. It's not reported in America. I so, wonder why. So what happened to Lovell and Swigert and Hayes, the crew? Were they sent back that, to the U.S. quietly? That's what it appears that the submarine was doing taking him on board. And then they were returned. 
to the United States. They were returned. Or they were not in the capsule in the first place. Aha. There we go. Listen, we'll have to leave Apollo 13 for another day, and uh, we'll we'll do that. Oh, we'll yes. delve into it even further. Marcus, a, a real delight uh, finally making your acquaintance and having you on the program. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for your great questions. NexusMagazine.com. Just click on there and subscribe. It's quick and it's easy and well worth it. My thanks to Marcus Allen. My website is strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to this program. Check it out. Click on the blue members button, and that will allow you to register. It's quick, easy, and fast. And uh, say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth.